I'm going to hazard to guess that almost everybody knows someone affected by Alzheimer's. It's a disease that can change the lives of whole families, not just the loved one with the symptoms. And that's a growing group of people because one study suggests that the number of people living with dementia will triple by 2050. So we're focusing this hour on Alzheimer's and dementia care, and we're taking your calls because I know this is something affecting everybody, and it's something you want to talk about. So first, we're going to get into how much we know about the disease, where we stand on drugs. Then a little bit later in the hour, what the future of dementia care should look like. Maybe like those European dementia villages I've heard so much about. Is that a good way to go? What do you think? Give us a call, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, 844-724-8255. And just remember, as I always say when we are talking about health, we can't give you individual medical advice. It is unethical. But we will try to answer your questions as well as we can. So to start off, a quick overview of the mystery of what causes Alzheimer's disease with my guest, Dr. Sumi Jayadev, neurogenesist at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you very much, Plato. It's great to be here. Nice to have you. Uh, that's quite all right. <laughs> I get my name wrong also. So nothing, nothing to worry about. Uh, Let's let, let's say that Alzheimer's is a hundred-piece puzzle. How much of that puzzle do we confidently confidently know we can put together, or have we figured it out? Oh gosh, you know, I'd say we probably have two of the corners done. That's it. That, and uh, you know, maybe one of the one of the edges. Uh, but I'd say the pace um, by which we are putting those next pieces down is increasing, and I think we're going to get there. Um, you know, in the foreseeable future. Okay, so, so it what, is a surmountable yeah, problem. You do believe that? I do. I oh, honestly do. Okay, so what are the big questions you need to answer or want to answer? Uh, so I think, you know, the if our goal is, and I think this is what our goal is, is to create meaningful therapies, some of the big challenges we have are really still at the basics of the biology of the disease. Um, so understanding the mechanism is critical because that's when we're going to be able to find the right targets. Um, I think some of the big challenges with Alzheimer's disease in particular is that it is heterogeneous and the mechanisms of the disease are diverse and the cell types in the brain that contribute to keeping your brain functional are many. Uh, so there's you know a number of implications to that. That also means that there are many uh, many areas where uh, something can go awry and cause problems. And it also means that there's not going to be one silver bullet. Mm -hmm. What about all these tangles and taus and proteins going on in the brain? Can you clear that up for us? Are they causes or effects or don't we know? So you have put your finger on the problem that is causing a lot of consternation for scientists globally. Uh, there are people who are very thoughtful that have quite differing opinions. Some that believe that the tangles and the amyloid plaques, and just in case people don't know, these are proteins that are deposited in people that have Alzheimer's disease brain in the brain tissue, either between the brain cells or within the brain cells. And those proteins aren't there typically. So there is a thought that those proteins are irritating the cells or causing the cells to die, and that's what helps to promote the progression of disease. 
There are some folks that believe that those proteins are there during disease, but they're really more markers of the disease, and they are not the actual problem. Uh, and so you can imagine then that that leads to differing approaches uh, in terms of what are the um, consequences of clearing that protein. Are you really going to get to the actual mechanism of the problem, or are you uh, going to at least remove an irritant? Hmm. And, and well, let's talk about the progression of Alzheimer's disease. How does it move? How does it progress? So there are different ways to think about that. Um, clinically, we think about it in terms of uh, the degree to which it's interfering with your daily life. And so people can start to have mild progression of disease where their thinking isn't quite how it used to be. It's not what you'd expect for someone of their age but it doesn't necessarily interfere with their daily routine. And so those folks would have what we would call mild cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. When the cognitive change is enough to interfere with their daily life, we call uh, folks demented. In terms of the pathological change in the brain, there is also somewhat of a trajectory. Uh, the parts of the brain that are involved with memory, the hippocampus, temporal lobes, those tend to be involved earlier. And then eventually, uh, we start to see that degree of degeneration spreading across other parts of the brain, and that correlates with the degree of cognitive impairment as well. Mm -hmm. Now, you are a neurogeneticist. Does that mean that you study the genetic connection to Alzheimer's? And, and let's talk about that. Is it genetic or is it environmental? Uh, the answer is yes. So um, <laughs> there are... you know. We learned long ago that there are rare forms of Alzheimer's diseases that are caused by single gene changes, mutations, we used to call them single gene changes, that's enough to cause Alzheimer's disease if you have that one change. And, and so that's the type of disease where you can inherit it from your parents. You may then have a 50-50 chance of, an, of passing it on to your child. Um, and so that is what we think about when we think about genetic forms of disease, only a single gene. Now, we know that other forms of Alzheimer's disease, the much more common form of Alzheimer's disease, we call it sporadic, still does have a genetic contribution. It's just a contribution of many different areas of the genome. And each of those areas have a very small risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So in other words, the type of Alzheimer's disease that we get when we're 75 still has a genetic contribution, but it's much more complex, hmm. and it's a combination of very small risk uh, genes that um, can tip you over the edge to develop Alzheimer's yeah. disease I or can, not. I can see why this is so mysterious then. Mm -hmm. about, right, exactly. About figuring it out. Are there environmental factors that we know of that affect development? Yes. Yeah, so we know things. So age is the biggest risk factor. Um, we know that vascular disease, so other health comorbidities can increase risk for Alzheimer's disease. Now, there's a lot of rich um, investigation going on right now about truly environmental factors like pollution or other exposures that can increase risk. And that um, that research is moving. And, and um, I'm sure we're going to be getting more um, mm -hmm. uh, concrete information about that type of investigation soon. But it's likely environmental, and most importantly, it's likely the combination of your genetic background and how it intersects with your environment as you go through life. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the phones, 844-724-8255. Uh, Lots of people want to talk about it. Let's go to Lily in Chicago. Hi, Lily. Yes, hi, Ira. Thank you for taking my call. Um, uh, the, the reason I'm calling is that I recently signed up for an Alzheimer's study 
that's being done in Chicago. Right. And um, I, um, I was told that in order to participate in the study, I would have to take a blood test to find out if I had the marker for Alzheimer's. Um, I went ahead, I took the blood test, and uh, they told me in the test results that I do not have the marker for Alzheimer's. Huh. Yeah. Also, I want to tell you that uh, many years ago, prior to the blood test, I had a, a CAT scan of my brain, and I was told by the doctors uh, at the Mayo Clinic that I would never have to worry about getting Alzheimer's. So apparently there are things in the blood and in the brain that can are predictors of Alzheimer's. Well, th- thank you, thank you for calling. Let's let's talk about that uh, with my guest, Dr. Jayadev. What do you think of that? Are there markers, or that is a fantastic question because I think what you've raised is a very important um, area of research and uh, called biomarkers. And so, Ira, you'd mentioned the amyloid beta and the tau protein in the brain, and that's one way in which we uh, make the diagnosis. Turns out we can measure those proteins in the blood. And so um, there are a slew of, of investigations that have been reported the last few years that demonstrate that we can reliably detect that amyloid protein in the blood, in the plasma, and use that information to determine if someone really has an Alzheimer's disease profile or not. Um, and this is a, a terrific advancement because prior to that, we were able to measure that amyloid beta in living people, but it was through the CSF which is fluid that has to be gotten through a lumbar puncture. So yes, we can now measure amyloid beta and tau in the blood, and I'm hopeful, and I think the whole field is hopeful that we'll be able to use that to really start to tailor both our uh, therapies as well as tailor the clinical trials such that we're not um, bringing in people into clinical trials that aren't truly Mm -hmm. at risk for Alzheimer's disease. Well, if we don't know whether those plaques and tangles are a result of Alzheimer's or a cause or an effect, what does that mean that we know the level? (laughs) Fantastic question. So I'll take a step back and say, I think everyone feels confident that those proteins are markers of the disease. Uh, So if you can say that in people that don't have Alzheimer's disease, there aren't those biomarkers, then at least we know that you can follow that uh, to determine whether or not um, your medication may remove that protein or not. Mm. Whether or not that's interfering with the with the progression of cognitive impairment is, is not clear. But I think, it, I think it's fair to say that we all agree they're biomarkers. Okay. Uh, uh, before the break, a quick question. There are Alzheimer's drugs out there, two FDA-approval therapies. Uh, one of them was actually not approved by the committee that, that reviewed it. How effective are these drugs, and should people think they can rely on them to be cured? Okay, another $2 billion question you've asked, literally. Um, you know, so I think that these last two trials uh, were demonstrated that we can design and execute a trial that demonstrates a drug engages its target and does what it's supposed to do, which is remove the amyloid plaque. In this recent case, it looked like there was some mild cognitive improvement, and there are thoughtful people who disagree about the significance of that improvement. But I think it just shows that we, that armor around Alzheimer's disease can be broken, that we have reason to think that we can get around okay. this problem. 
Joining me now are my guests, Dr. Tia Powell, bioethicist and psychiatrist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and author of the book, Dementia Reimagined. She's joining me here in our studio in New York. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. And Dr. Nathaniel Chin, geriatrician and assistant professor, University of Wisconsin in Madison. And we also have uh, Dr. Sumi Jayadev still on the line to take your calls and to talk about it. Welcome all of you to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. Uh, Nathaniel, let's clear this up early. Alzheimer's is not the same as dementia, right? It's just one specific disease. Wonderful way to start, absolutely. Dementia is what we call a clinical syndrome, or as I like to say, it's just a way of describing what someone is experiencing and what others are observing, whereas Alzheimer's disease is the actual change in the brain that is causing those symptoms. Mm -hmm. Tia, let's talk about what dementia care looks like in the U.S., and the type of care people receive, it's, it's, it's all over the map. It really it? is, yeah. There are a huge number of people, maybe even the majority, who meet criteria for dementia and don't even know they have it. So they cannot be said to be receiving dementia care because they haven't even had the diagnosis yet. Sometimes that might be okay. I think when people have multiple chronic illnesses, which is true of the majority of people actually on Medicare, it, it may not make such a difference. But for many, it does make a difference. And they're not getting that diagnosis in a timely fashion. So they can plan and think about what to do and situate themselves and, and just get a handle on their life generally. It's also, it's, it's their body. It's their information. Mm -hmm. I, I would wish that they would have that. Do, do people just, some of them just don't even know they have it? They're lonely at home and have no idea. Absolutely. Or, you know, they're, um, many people now don't necessarily have family members or involved family members. So they go in, they see their doctor from time to time, and the doctor says, how are you? And they go, well, okay. Mm. Or I have, you know, I, you know, I have heart disease, you know, I have diabetes. But you yourself may not be a reliable reporter about your cognitive function. That's one of the insidious things about dementia. It clouds your own sense of assessment in, for some people in how they're doing. So what kinds of things then affect how people are diagnosed and cared for? Well, if you have very obvious memory lapses, for instance, that other people notice, and we all think of dementia, and I always say dementia because that's sort of the umbrella term, like mm -hmm. cancer. We don't know necessarily which type somebody has. Um, but it, it may be that if there are very obvious lapses in memory, that comes to their attention or it comes to the attention of somebody else. And we all think of dementia as being, up. Oh, she's losing her memory. But there are a lot of other things that go into dementia, which is a complicated um, disease that affects your entire neurologic mm -hmm. system. So you might have difficulty physically balancing, walking. Um, at the very end stages of the diseases of the disease, you will have difficulty eating. And the majority of people at the very end stage of dementia have difficulty swallowing food. So it's just a wide range of things. Other people get irritable or um, they show, uh, very importantly, a decline in the ability to manage their money. So that's a terrible symptom, and unfortunately, it may come early. It may come before other things. So your loved ones aren't with you when you're paying bills, right. and they may not know that you're sending $10,000 you know, money orders to foreign nations mm. and doing all kinds of stuff that mm. is not in your best interest. And you, you never anticipated that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nathaniel, I mentioned earlier that the number of people with dementia 
which Alzheimer's is just one form of, may triple within the next 30 years. And we can hear Tia talking about all the related problems and things that people are not out prepared for. Obviously, our medical system is not prepared for that either in the U.S., is it? Unfortunately, it's not. And wh- why? why? Why is it not prepared? I mean, this is not something that's just sprung up on us, has it? No, I would say it's probably just the, the the lack of foresight in recognizing the needs that come with such a significant diagnosis. As, as Tia was saying, this is a, a condition that is not just about your brain, your mind. It is about your personality, your behaviors, your physical function, how you engage with others, how you engage us in your environment. And each one of those aspects is going to require help as well as support. And, and from there, there's teams of people who would be needed to, to identify the area of need and then to provide care and support for them. So this is a, a public health issue. It certainly is. Tia, you are nodding. I am. Recognition <laughs> of that. Uh, how big a public health issue, and why is it not getting, if it's a public health issue, more attention? Because it it would require so much money to get us ready that it's a number that we don't even want to think about. It's money always, but it's also that this crosses so many domains. I mean, if you think about it, you're capacity to manage your money isn't specifically a medical issue. We didn't, in medical school, learn how to help people with that. The same with your driving, the same with um, taking all kinds of risks that adults are allowed to take, including how you handle a gun, which many, many Americans have. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, more than 50% of U.S. households that have a gun in them also have a a person with dementia. Mm -hmm. So this goes way beyond just medical care. And our medical system, as you know, has had a lot to worry about lately. But it's really a whole community-wide thing. This is how you live your life and what choices you make. So we need broader policies than just medicine can accomplish. Let's talk about choices with my next caller, Anne, in the Bangor, Pennsylvania. Hi. Hi. Oh, thank you so much for taking my call, Ira. Um, I just want to share personally, um, I retired out as a psychiatric family nurse practitioner and basically since 1975 have on and off been a treatment um, participant with individuals with various forms of dementia and that includes my mother my grandmother my uncle and they each did find some diagnoses Um, I retired myself out because I became aware of my own cognitive impairment and did get testing and was found to have microhemorrhages and am living now without that level of practice that I used to have and definitely the level of, I guess you would call it the executive function. Mm-hmm. Given the nature of our current state of insufficient medical care for individuals such as myself, knowing that going forward, these new research studies won't produce for me what I'll need. I would like to hear the opinions of others on the right to die, our compassionate care for individuals who can make these decisions now that I have made while I'm capable of making Mm. them. And I'd love to hear the answers. Okay. Dr. Chin, would you like this? Yes. I I appreciate you sharing that story. and I will say it's it's such a complicated issue in that 
when a person makes these advanced care planning documents, they are in a certain state of mind and they may not know exactly how they would feel in the future. And so that's one of the arguments for why people are hesitant. But I will say the idea of having autonomy and the right to decide is also something that is being heavily considered. And, and so you can see me going both ways because it really is something that is being debated and something that each state mm -hmm. and each organization is having to consider. But I certainly mm -hmm. believe that this idea of talking about the future, this idea of having these advanced care directives and having people that you have in your corner who are going to honor your wish are really critical, regardless of whether or not you agree with the, the right to die and make, and make that decision yourself. The fundamental principles of thinking about the future and having that in place is still, is, is still critical. The details of it, I think, are really going to be sorted out as, as we move forward. Dr. Powell? I would just add, and I, I imagine this is why you're bringing this important topic up. In the U.S., none of the states that permit aid in dying permit it for people with dementia. The model law that was used to pass those statutes says that you have to have a diagnosis that we expect to be terminal in less than six months, and you have to have decision-making capacity now. So effectively, that rules out somebody with dementia um, meeting criteria unless they also have a diagnosis that's going to, an additional diagnosis. So uh, your question is very timely. Right now, we cannot do that in the US. And it's really tricky. I mean, I think I, I fully support Dr. Chin's statement, advanced directives, letting people know your values, articulating them. You can do a lot. You can say, please don't try to resuscitate me when there's no reasonable expectation that it will extend my life or improve quality of life. That's super important. You can do that today everywhere in the US. Yep. So the other one, I don't know. And I think it's hard when somebody, it raises really tricky questions that no. are probably more than we can do today. And have you heard about these these dementia villages in, in France that I talked about, the Lande village and places like that? Do you, have you yes, thought about those options? Those options are wonderful, and I even explored them during my doctoral studies um, for individuals with developmental disabilities and mental illness. Our country obviously doesn't handle that category of body, mind, illness in a manner that meets the needs of, of the patients, and I know that. I see that. So I am not going to put myself through that or my family through that, and I do support any advocacy on anybody's part to, you know, expand the ability for us to write our advanced directives based on dementia. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope we've given you some comfort today. Oh, well, I'm glad to get the word out. That's very comforting. That gives me a job <laughs> that yeah. I accomplished. Thanks for calling and sharing. Good luck to Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, Tia, there's a stigma around people with dementia, like that a person's a zombie or a burden to others. And as our caller was talking about, she's worked with a lot of people in her own family this way. How does that affect how we as a society treat these people? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. It's such an important issue. The illness is a bad illness, you know, just the biology, what it does to you, how it changes you. And we're working on that part of it. But the stigma is something we add on top of that burden. It doesn't have to be there. So a, a number of years ago, a young woman um, I know told me that her parents had lifelong friends that lived right next door, and they had a fence dividing the two backyards. And over decades, the two couples would have dinner together every Friday. 
And when they learned that the wife in one of those couples had dementia, they stopped those dinners. Now, I assume these are good, loving people. So I assume that that was that they were frightened. Everybody's worried about their own mortality. They were getting older. Or maybe they were embarrassed. They didn't know how to deal with somebody with dementia. Or I don't know what else. But that story, unfortunately, is common. So not only do you have the burden, the biological burden, the weight of that, but you have this other one that even people who were not bad people place on you, this sort of avoiding you, not including, um, and it's hurtful. And mm. there's enough isolation and loneliness anyway in our country, and particularly with older people, but then you add this on top of that. People, and even the caretaker, can be completely isolated yeah. because nobody will include you anymore. It's such a shame. Uh, Dr. Chin, as a geriatrician, I've heard, uh, do you hear stories about how doctors don't know how to deal with dementia patients? Yes, unfortunately, one, there's a stigma among healthcare professionals, which actually was identified in a really important report from Alzheimer's Disease International. And, and so it's not just the community and patients that have this sense of stigma, it's providers. And along with the, the stigma is just the lack of knowledge in proper identification of symptoms, uh, full assessments, which often takes a, a great deal of time and, and staff and expertise but even the belief that there are things that we can do. So there's still a, a misconception that there's not a lot of care options for people living with, with cognitive impairment. And that frankly is not true. And there's a lot that we can do for quality of life and to maintain independence and function. Mm -hmm. Tina in Tucson, before we go to the break. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Oop. Yes, can you hear yes, me? Yes, go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. What an honor to talk to you. Yes, I just... Um, well, I, I just had the thought that, you know, as folks get older, they, I, by the way, my, my grandfather passed away at age 95 of Alzheimer's. Oh, anyway, Sorry to hear that. That was just in December, so it's, it's fresh. But um, one thing I was thinking is I, I know that diet has been linked to progressing, like eating a lot of pasta, eating a lot of rice, breads, things like that. You know, I've, I've heard that that's a big link and can make dementia and Alzheimer's worse. So I have a question. Is that true? If there's, you know, someone can yeah. confirm that for me. And then secondly, I, I would just think on a mass scale, we have folks living alone in their homes, making these little little meals, you know, that aren't, that have a lot of pasta in them and a lot of uh, preservatives, you know, and I, I, I just would think that that would be contributing and I don't know. I just think on a grand scale how important, you know, having our own gardens would be, you know, so we can grow right. our own vegetables. And I'm sure that would make a difference. Let me, let me anyway, a couple let, of questions there. Thank you. Before we the break, thank you. Uh, Dr. Jayadev, uh, what about diet? I think that's a great question. And, of course, a lot of people are interested in it. <clears throat> I'd say that, the, um, you know, there's a fair amount of research that the Mediterranean diet can be uh, helpful and uh, protective. We know that there is the the brain-heart connection that is borne out in research, animal studies, and in human studies, that uh, keeping what we do to keep our heart healthy is good for keeping our brain healthy. Uh, I think those those types of avenues are well supported. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, we would need more research to to study all these connections. Absolutely right, and I think that there is a, a growing interest in it, and and I think uh, any. Further statements, yes, we would need to do more work. Uh, uh, do you think, Dr. Chin, that, that doctors 
when they speak to dementia patients, give them the respect they deserve, or are they just not, you know, I've heard stories about uh, doctors yelling at their patients as if they could control that. You know, I think many doctors do, and I think those that don't, I'd like to believe that it's just a lack of awareness and understanding. I, you know, I, I haven't seen doctors yell at patients, but what I do see and what I was trained to avoid in a geriatric fellowship was actually speaking to the family member by by acknowledging that a person has dementia, the, the provider is actually excluding the person that's in front of us and speaking to their care partner or their child mm. as if that as if the person wasn't there. And I was trained to, to, to completely avoid that and actually address the person Interesting. who's in front of me. Interesting. Taking the calls and your tweets, like this one from Misty from Eastern Oklahoma. She says, healthcare desert, caring for an 87-year-old mother Want to see more dementia villages. Tia, do we want more dementia villages? I certainly do. The one in France was so delightful sounding to me that I would move there tomorrow if I could. <laughs> but yet there was some pushback in that article about people who were saying, but we're putting them in islands. We're isolating them. That's maybe not what we want to do. I, I agree with that also. I think I would... Um, I think there's a lot of room for experimentation. We know we haven't solved the problem of having a lot of different options that are attractive to lots of different people for where and how they should live when they have dementia. I personally would love to see a more multi-generational model where people are better integrated into a community. So it might be a planned community where you have levels of different care for people with cognitive impairment and maybe the staff is also housed there and their little kids mm -hmm. and maybe there's a school or a daycare center which is delightful for most older people that I know they want to see little kids little kids can come and visit to them they can read to each other so I'd love to see that connection and I think uh, it helps retain and attract the best healthcare workers to care for people with dementia because we don't pay them very well. They don't get benefits, but mm -hmm. housing in a lovely village, that would be great. Um, so I think we yeah. can do better and, and have It's certainly work. better than what we're doing now. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, Nathaniel, what, what's your idea on this as a geriatrician? Uh, how do you look at whether that's a, a good option or not? Well, I like Tia's comment about a variety because we're all unique people and we have different preferences and, and, and uh, different tastes. And I will say here in Wisconsin, many people want to live in their home until the very last day. And I honor that. And I try to do the best we can for people to stay home, whether that's with supports, with more caregivers, um, adult activity centers. But there is a time when some people may need to be in an environment where there is more support. And the idea of what you guys are talking about is amazing, where we're actually allowing people to live and exist more freely instead of putting them in our own box of what we think things should look like. And so I think there needs to be a variety of options mm -hmm. for people and the support in each of those environments. Let's go to Amanda in Kansas City. Hi, Amanda. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, so I'm a COVID long hauler, and I was actually in a National Geographic article about exactly this subject last year. Uh, I, start, I stopped driving over a year ago when I started falling downstairs. And I know that a threefold increase sounds like a lot, but when we when we take COVID into consideration, that actually seems like a conservative estimate. Was that part of that projection? And just as a side note, uh, many of us in the long COVID community have talked about having uh, our own villages like that. We want that. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. Tia, do you know anything about that or uh, <laughs> Dr. Chin? 
I can say I think it's too soon. There's so much we don't yet know about long COVID. We are just working out what symptoms are part of it, how can we intervene, who is more likely to be uh, subject to that kind of long uh, tail of symptoms sticking on. So it is certainly a potential risk, but as far as I know, there's no Mm -hmm. solid data on whether or not it increases Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Wendy in Rochester, Washington. Hi, Wendy. Hi there. Hi. Um, so my father was diagnosed six years ago um, with Alzheimer's. It started out with Lewy body dementia, and then it went to Alzheimer's, and now it's back to Lewy body dementia. And I'm just curious if your guest could um, talk about the differences between the two. I know my, my father had a lot of problems with severe paranoia. Um, so I'm just curious if yeah. there is a difference about Lewy body. Yeah, uh, let me. Let, that's that leads me to a larger question: um, Is there a definite diagnosis? Because uh, doctors are looking at the symptoms, right, and and taking blood tests. Doctor Chin, is there a definite diagnosis? Right now, the diagnosis of Lewy body disease is a clinical one based on certain criteria and symptoms. I will say, though, there's a huge push in research to find biomarkers of other non-Alzheimer's diseases like Lewy body disease. Um, And so I do feel like we are on the cusp of having more of those tests. They might be spinal fluid related or hopefully blood related. But right now, it's seeing an expert, a neurologist in particular, who has great experience in seeing Mm -hmm. Uh, individuals with those symptoms. Uh, but there, this example is is very prevalent of going back and forth between one etiology and another for, for a cause of, of dementia. I have Dr. Jayadev back again. Doctor, is there is there a connection between long haulers and dementia? Right. So, you know, I think there's very good reason to think that uh, there could be a connection and there is some recent work that suggests that there may be an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. I think we're still getting the data, uh, but certainly one of the um, significant risks for Alzheimer's disease in, invokes uh, a, a implication of the immune system and inflammation. And uh, if long COVID has to do with uh, how your immune system uh, changes over time, that's one clear connection. Mm-hmm. Here's a uh, tweet that came in from uh, Eduardo who says, uh, glad you touched on the need of a geriatrician as you age. My wife and I are 82 and unable to find one in our area of Southwest Orlando. This is Florida. <laughs> Why is that? A zip has 13% over 65, Dr. Chin. It is shocking. I would think that you would have people going to Florida, especially in the, in the weather that we've had in parts of this country. Uh, there's just there's a, a dearth of... of um, of geriatricians. There's just a huge shortage that we don't have the the training, we don't have enough fellows, and we certainly don't have enough uh, full-time employees or or geriatricians. Mm -hmm. And right now the field is torn as to what to do. I will say we are trying to improve our our geriatricians in this country, but also geriatricians teaching primary care providers on the the principles of geriatrics. In in the short time we have left, let's talk about, uh, let me begin with you, Tia, about how we can make the world socially more inclusive for inaccessible for people with dementia. What do we need to do? That's such a great um, question. There are some really wonderful um, projects, experiments, I'm not sure what to call them, where people are running 
dementia cafes. So they set up the restaurant and they may just set aside a night where you can be yourself, you can come here, it's all right if you, we bring you your order and you say that's not what I ordered and we say it was, you know, we sort of work it out. So setting up public places where we're welcoming, you can be you, that's all good. There's also, um, I know in the theater, I went to a fantastic theater performance before COVID um, that was very inclusive of people with all sorts of disabilities, including tics and shouting and moving around and stuff like that. So that kind of experience where we're welcoming all sorts of different people means all the world to people mm. where they're not feeling shunned, they don't have to be embarrassed if they can't do everything right. Yeah, and, and, and accepting how they view the world, yeah. not telling them how they should view it or how it is, but yeah. accepting this is how they view it. Yeah. And, and ex- yeah, and, and making it comfortable for them to view it that way. So if, if they want to call a, a house a car, you don't get into an argument about it's not, right? Because it can be hard to do. I myself was not as good about this as I wish I had been with my mother, where we would get into things and I would say, yeah, I don't think so. And she'd say, if you say so. <laughs> she was teaching it, me it, to be more patient. Because we have to learn these things. <laughs> Right? Yeah. These are not things that you, you, you encounter when you're a young person. Yeah. 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 Uh, Nathaniel, I've heard that improving quality of life, and I mean being socially connected, happy, that, that can slow down the progression of Alzheimer's. Is that true? You know, I would say that it, it's yet to be seen that that actually slows the progression of the disease in the brain, but it certainly enhances a person's quality of life and potentially then their overall experience day to day, where people may notice an improvement in symptoms or slower change in symptoms, slower change in daily function. And so what matters most, of course, is not exactly what's happening in the brain, but what a person is able to do mm-hmm. and, and the joy that they have each day. And certainly those things are meaningful, and we see that in people who are, who are active socially and, and emotionally. And mm-hmm. Let's go to Ankeny, Ohio. Hi, hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, hi. Hi, hi. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, I'm a little on the younger side. I'm 32. And so my question is twofold. First, I know that there can be some stigma we talked about earlier about having dementia and Alzheimer's. What types of things can I look for in my neighbors or my family members that may help me encourage them to seek care um, if they themselves may not want to believe, right, or if there's an ego um, sort of in the way to, to not want to go seek care? And the second part of my question is how important is it to identify early um, and start treatment early? Mm, let's, let's get some answers. Dr. Chin, let me begin with you. I love this question and I appreciate being asked. I, I find that having evidence, and, and not that you would show this into the person's face and say, look, look, you, you're making mistakes, but denial is very powerful. And so being able to say, well, the other day this happened, and instead of it making, making it about the person, you make it about you and say, I'm worried, I'm concerned this is happening, I would feel better if we could do this, so that they know they're not alone. And, and that's one way of being able to encourage a person to speak to their primary care provider. And I say that because there are many different causes of thinking change, not all of which are brain diseases and incurable. Uh, Other things like sleep apnea, medications, mood, your thyroid can affect your thinking ability, and those are all treatable. And I think if people knew that, they might be more willing to be evaluated, but that is a huge barrier. And so being able to encourage people through real life examples, your support, 
And this idea of rever reversible cause, I think, can be a way to get people to, to talk to their, their doctor. Okay, thanks Thanks for that, that uh, the question. Um, one thing we can't overlook here is the importance of, the, of caregivers, which is what this young caller says that they're going to become after a while. Uh, do we have a good enough su job support for them? How do we support these people who, you know, have to take a huge burden on? Tia? So um, I wasn't sure if you were looking I'm, I'm at sorry. me. But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I, sorry. Uh, yeah. um, this is my, my, really, my fault. Sorry. No, no, not at all. This is a very difficult job. And there are a lot of programs, a lot of people who are trying to help those who provide care so that they can keep at it. Because so many people, as Dr. Chin was saying, do want to stay in their home. And to do that, you know, paradoxically, the more you have support available, the more you accept mm -hmm. support, the longer you'll be able to live independently. But getting that support is really tricky. The vast majority of care for people with dementia is provided unpaid by their family members, family defined broadly. It might be your neighbor, somebody in your faith community. But um, to do that, to stay with it, to be patient, to never get angry if you have to repeat things, if you have to uh, clean up in some you know psychological or physical way after various things, that's really tough. So the Alzheimer's Association, some local groups, they've done a great job. And actually, in some ways, COVID maybe helped us here because they moved a lot of programs online. So there can be support groups, and then you don't mm. have to get through the snow and ice and you know figure out who's going to take care of your loved one with uh, dementia while you go. And those support groups can be all the world for yeah. people with a place where you can you know, express your frustrations and people won't think you're a bad person, a place where you can laugh with somebody else who's faced the same issues, and a place where you can get useful practical tips of somebody who's doing this. So those programs are too few and far between, and but they're getting there, okay. and they're super helpful. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, Dr. Chin, do you see that there is an increase in awareness and a call for more support for caregivers? I do. And I feel like it goes back to one of your original statements, Ira. People know people who are living with cognitive change or the family member or the caregiver of someone living with cognitive change. And when you see that on the personal side, it, it raises this awareness that this is happening and that more and more people have it. And, it. and to some degree, it normalizes the fear that we all may experience about our own mortality. But with that, comes this push for how can we help? How can we be a part of this? And, and I do think there are more conversations related to how do we support the people supporting those with, with thinking changes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. T, I, I can imagine that one thing that's really difficult about dementia is when your loved one is in another time and space, right? And they have forgotten who you are. Um, when is it helpful to try and bring someone back to our reality instead of letting them live in theirs? Or is it not helpful to do that? You know, that's such a great question, and I think many people struggle with that. I think it depends on the case. The classic example is someone who's lost their spouse of decades, and they don't remember that. Mm -hmm. You know, it shouldn't... Why on earth would you go to that person every day and say, your lovely wife Lucy is dead? This is, you know, and the person has to go through that all over again. If there's some reason, if they say, I'm waiting for Lucy, where is she? Then you may need to do something, but a really great caregiver comes up with creative solutions and might say, you know, I, I don't see her here, but I know you have a wonderful scrapbook with pictures of you and Lucy together. Let's go look at that while we're waiting. So, you know, you 
don't want to patronize somebody, but neither do you need to force upon them something that they may not be able to retain and isn't helpful and useful to them. Where can a caregiver go to learn how to do these things? Yeah, so a lot of caregivers. I think these support groups, but there's also lots of educational materials. We need a lot more. We need education. We need support. Are there organizations that you can go online or to join? Absolutely. The Alzheimer's Association has some, but there are also local organizations that have a lot of education. The Dementia Action Alliance. I think has some education. Because it's gonna programs. it's yeah. gonna change your life as much oh, as it's changed the patient's life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, p- p- possibly even more. Yeah. Because it may involve getting a lot of your siblings together, a lot of other caregivers Probably. to cooperate yeah. with each other. Well yeah. we have run out of time. I want to thank you all for taking time to be with us today. Dr. Tia Powell, bioethicist and psychiatrist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, author of the great book, Dementia Reimagined, and she's here in our New York studios. Dr. Nathaniel Chin, geriatrician and assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin, and Dr. Sumi Jayadev, neurogenesist at the University of Washington School, neurogeneticists, excuse me, at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And we've put together some resources about Alzheimer's and dementia care for you to visit on our website. That's sciencefriday.com slash ALZ, sciencefriday.com slash ALZ.